Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I am Sean KB. And we are here with a very special guest today. Um, his name is Hamilton Nolan. He is a writer for Splinter News. Um, he writes a lot about labor issues. Perhaps you've read some of his articles. Hello, Hamilton. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Of course. Welcome to the show. Super hyped to have you. So I I know that I've been a little remiss in asking this question. Um, Andy's not here right now, so I feel like I can. Um, he's not the biggest fan of it. But, um, you know, I, I, fuck it. I'm just going to go for it. He's also not the boss of you. He's also not the boss of me. Um, so, Hamilton... How pure is your hate? <laughs> I'm trying to make my hate uh, less pure. You know, as I get older, I'm trying to, I'm trying to grow my love and shrink my hate. So that's my, that's my project for the next decade. You know, hmm. so, from your uh, writing, it doesn't seem like that process is too far along. But no, uh, it's, <laughs> it's a work in progress. You know, I mean, my my the decade of my 40s will be about love, and the God. decade of my 30s has been about hate. Oh, that's great. Soon I'll make the switch. And maybe, maybe in the 50s you could just go back the other way. You could be a very hateful yeah, 50s. Yeah, just oscillate back yeah. and forth. I like that. You yeah. know, our hate is generally mixed in with love. I'd say it's, I don't know, something of a dialectic. <laughs> Am I allowed to use that word? Yes, I think we need air horns when that happens, but yes. You know, I mean, it goes back to, we, we like to joke about this, but it goes back to Alexander Coburn, of course, the great Marxist historian who likes to ask people, how pure is your hate? He was a Marxist journalist. He was a bit of a historian, too, but uh, the famous uh, moment in there, and he he retells this in one of his articles later on, is um, son of famous Marxist theorist Ralph Miliband, Ed Miliband, who later becomes the leader of the Labor Party, uh, got an internship at the Nation magazine where Coburn was working in, I believe, in the 80s. And uh, so Coburn would always ask the same question to his interns. He would say, as they came in, he'd give them, you know, this is what you need to do, blah, 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 blah. And he'd say, now my only question for you is how pure is your hate? Because that's what he's looking for, Coburn, you know, this cultural critic, <laughs> this, you know, Marxist uh, bomb-throwing asshole, rage. class rage. And uh, Ed Miliband famously uh, looked at Alexander Coburn and, and just said, what do you mean hate? I don't have any hate in me whatsoever. And from I that, I don't hate anyone. And for that moment in time, Alex Coburn like completely wrote the guy off. And then when he becomes labor leader, you know, much later on, Red Ed they called him, yeah. but he was not so red, and his hate was not so pure. And look what that got him. Yeah, maybe Alexander Coburn was a horrible boss. Too. Yeah, he might have been the Amy Klobuchar of the. Yeah, he probably wasn't super prick, but he was he was a big inspiration for me. So he, he had good purity of hate. And you know what? Sorry, Andy, we brought it back. And yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe we'll continue to do that. And you know what? Our hate is always mixed in with the purest of love for all humankind. So. And it's not just because <laughs> we're a, married. It's, well, oh, God. I wasn't even going to bring that up, babe. Andy's just going to cut this whole section out now. Let's you talk know, about having kids. <laughs> Cut, cut. Just kidding. It's great. It's great. It's great. Everything's great. um, I wanted to have you on to talk about some labor issues, Hamilton. I know you've been a very active media organizer in that space for a few years now, Um, but I also want to harken back to a time many years ago when maybe your uh, worker and class consciousness was not quite (laughs) as evolved as it currently is. And I'm talking, of course, about the time when you almost got me fired from my job <laughs> for something that I wrote on Facebook. 
really. Oh shit! Oh, well, wow. Some scores. Some scores are being settled on the antifada today. Okay, so once upon a time, uh, at my shitty blog job. Uh, not going to name any names. I can name names. It was crushable. You're never writing, going back yeah. to them. No, though. obviously not. I was writing, I believe, seven posts a day yeah. total for Crushable and the Gloss. That was like my job at Feed5 Media. And um, one of these posts that I was supposed to write was a sponsored post, an interview, in fact, with Allison Williams, the actress from Girls, oh, yeah. daughter of uh, Brian Williams, right. et cetera, et cetera. So now, now she's, you know, certainly made a name for herself in the perfectly cast role of her lifetime to get out. But back then, she was just a chicken girl. Um, it was a brand, I believe, Proactive, like the face wash yeah, brand. Yeah, the, the acne thing. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, they hooked up this interview for a sponsored post. And now I thought it was just going to be like, you know, a little line on top of it, like brought to you by Proactive or whatever. And this was like in my immature leftism phase too, like right after I got together with Sean and I was like, fuck everything. I'm a libertarian communist, but I still write for lady blogs, so <laughs> double life. It was funny to watch you try to shoehorn that in it towards was. the end. You, you did your best. Wasn't I it? did. I did do my best. There's definitely some embarrassing ones out there that people should definitely not look up <laughs> But anyway, um, they're like, oh, you don't have to do it if you don't want to. I'm like, oh no, it's fine. So like, I got on the phone and did this interview with her and I asked what I thought was a pretty softball question about uh, dating in New York, and uh, the flack came on, like, this interview is over. Thanks, Jamie. Bye. <laughs> I'm like, okay. They're like, yeah, she's not going to talk about that. I'm like, all right. I thought that was a pretty innocent question, but whatever. And then um, I had basically taught myself to blog by reading Gawker. And, yeah. <laughs> so, and Gawker in its prime, man. Your alma mater was uh, was quite the publication. Yeah. R.I.P. But so sorry, I was go like, on. all right, this is the story. The story is that they're being weird about this. Like, what? Why? Why? Why does she want to talk about it? Like, I thought she had a boyfriend, and like everything's normal. But then, like, the flack is being very protective. So, like, I, uh, I at first I took it to my boss, right? Who. Somebody who I had gone to college with, she's a connection I made through college, and she wasn't even a liberal. She was just like more of a libertarian, I would say, which made her very ideally positioned to become a member of the boss class. <clears throat> but uh, I was like, look, this is the story. She's like, no, no, Jamie, this, uh, this is a sponsorship. We're doing a, a giveaway with them. Like, just do do a nice thing. Do, do a nice post how we told you to. And I was like, fine. So... Then, you know, it turned out that the post was actually a video that they, they edited the audio from our interview over a video of her, like, washing her face <laughs> with proactive. Yeah. So this just, is not like a standard uh, sponsor. This is like an advertorial sort of commercial situation. Yeah, yeah. it was just, it was a commercial. And I was like, this is so ridiculous. And I complained about it on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And some scab that I was friends with <laughs> fucking screenshotted it sent it to Gawker, or sent it directly to you, you did a silly little post, like, oh, why doesn't Alice Williams want to talk about dating, and this got me in trouble. Did I cut your name out, though, at least? No. no. <laughs> well, in retrospect, I probably should have cut your name out. Yeah. Well, well you've learned a lot in the last seven or eight years. But. Yeah. So, a, funny, a funny Gawker-related Alice and Williams story 
is that when they started, when Girls first came out and Allison Williams was on it, Ryan Williams was friends with Nick Denton. And so he came to Gawker and had lunch with all of us off the record because he was trying to, like, soften us up to not make fun of his daughter. <laughs> oh, man. It was Good obviously a failure. Yeah. He gave it a shot. Well, yeah. on that level, I guess I'm glad that you wrote that post. But uh, <laughs> I apologize for uh, getting you in trouble with crushing I accept your apology. Aww. Thank you. Who knows, who knows where I could be right now if it weren't for that? I could be the CEO. CEO. Exactly. <laughs> I could be the CEO of a company that doesn't exist anymore. Maybe it was a blessing in disguise. I mean, I, I think so. See, no, I was just going to say, Antifada is the place where people come and they bury the hatchet, yeah. you know, and uh, apologies are made and they're accepted. And we move on and talk about, like, violence and class struggle. Let the healing continue. <laughs> okay, so right after that, I, I'm not done with my story. Oh, it's okay. going to be a very good segue into yeah. what we're talking yeah. about, so don't worry. Um, it happened to happen when I already had a meeting with my boss set up. So I was like, oh, fuck. Like, I don't know what she was going to say before, but the way that it went, and I'm pretty sure this is how it was always going to go, was she was like, hey, Jamie, I need you to get up two hours earlier every day and write about shitty morning television because we need someone to cover the mornings. And what you get in return is you keep your job. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. that, that's a bad deal, and I don't want it. And she was like, I think sincerely flabbergasted by that, that anyone would not want to take that deal. Yeah. And I was like, um, you guys don't pay me enough to get up any earlier than I currently am getting up. And even that is like earlier than I want to. Yeah, I think she was legitimately flabbergasted. She's like, Jamie, you're going to have to do it eventually. I'm like, mm, we'll see about that. And, like, you know, maybe I would do it for a staff job, which you're not going to give me. So, at that point in time, what I really should have done was turn around and sue her ass for unemployment, right? Because that is illegal. If anyone listening doesn't know this yet, you cannot hire someone as a 1099 freelancer and then boss them around like they're an employee, which includes, you know, setting your own hours. You're not allowed to set their hours or tell them the various conditions of doing their job. It's like, no, it's supposed to be on your terms. And I was a full-time worker, misclassified as a freelancer or a permalancer, which is, you know, it's fucking bullshit, but that's, that's what it is. So I would have had a very good case, but I was 25 years old, I was broke, and my only remaining job was blogging for The Block, which was another site under that umbrella, and I was really afraid to rock the boat, because if I lost that, then, like, I didn't know how I was going to make a living. Right. So, it, it, I think it's pretty instructive as to what we are up against yeah. in this fight, and, you know, hopefully some of those 25-year-olds maybe grew up a little bit, um, realized that, you know, this is it for you, nothing's going to change unless yeah. you change it. Like, if I were, st like, let's say that I didn't get fired or quit that job, right, and I was still, you know, you're, I'm 33 now, I'm almost 34, I'm still, like, classified as a permalancer, and, like, oh, I just got married, maybe I want to start a family. Like, I'm hoping, at least, that some of those people are waking up to these realities that nothing's going to change unless you do something. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's a pretty common experience in the media, definitely, where, like, 
you get in it when you're young and you have this vision of like rising to the top, rising to the top, and everybody thinks they're going to rise to the top. And then you, once you've been in it a while, you look around and you're like, actually, I'm just here. Like, I'm here and this is it. So, yeah, we better like make it better, you know? Yeah. You guys would know, of course, more than me about it, but it seems like there's this sort of uh, top tier you know, working for the New Yorker or the New York Times or Washington Post or Time or, and then there's, of course, video as well. But it seems like similar to like getting a tenure track position uh, at like a university, that those jobs are like small and getting smaller as time goes on. Yes. And no one is totally secure either. Like even demonstrators at the New Yorker are freelance. I mean, the New York Times is sort of a job for life. And you're right. There is like, there is like that thin crust at the very top where everybody's kind of trying to get and and, you know, the people that have those jobs do is more or less have jobs for like why is Maureen Dowd and David Brooks and Tom Friedman still have great jobs? Like is why are job they still life? why are they still alive? Is the question Supreme I Court is. Journalism. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Oh, and half of those jobs are reserved for nepotism cases like Barry Weiss. Right. Yes. Exactly. But that's like, you know, five percent of journalism maybe or three percent, you know, and and uh, all the rest of us kind of help ourselves, you know. But that thin crust and that patina, I think similar to like academia is this aspirational thing that probably it seems like fools a lot of people into thinking that that's they're, they're good enough in this meritocracy that they're going to rise to get one of these great positions. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's an interesting comparison to academia because, uh, you know, it's another field, like you said, where like one of the one of the important things about uh, trying to organize in any field like that is like the people at the top got to help pull up the people at the bottom too you know it's it's not really helpful when it's only the people at the bottom obviously you want the people at the bottom to band together and help ourselves but you also want you know the connection with the people at the top saying yes you know we're all in the same boat together so when jonathan chait comes out and he says i fully support a union and i want to bring everybody up uh with me and he's doing the right thing Shout out to John Shape. John Shape. Yeah. I mean, Just everybody, kidding, everybody. If you haven't seen his fucking horrific tweets. Everybody jokes. A, I mean, I think I had this conversation with Andy maybe about how, you know, isn't it his brand to have bad opinions about everything? And like, you that's know. That's true. He would, be, like, he would actually be off brand if he mm. said the right thing. So. That, that's true, yeah. But, you know, that said, if he were to say the right thing, we would yeah. still applaud him for it. And I'll say one cool thing about the union at Gawker is that, uh, the editor, the site leads, we call them, who are the editors of each site, are in the union, even though they're, you know, on the one hand, they're the boss of you editorially, but they, you know, we all made the decision together that we're all going to be in the union together, and that, I think, makes our union a lot stronger, because it's that principle in action, which is, like, the people who are on top are also in the union, and they're throwing in with everybody else. It's know? solidaristic in that way. Yeah. Exactly. That makes sense. We're, we're going to talk a lot, I think, about not just media, but unions in general. And I think it's really important, like, when you, whenever you see something like a, a second tier for new hires uh, come in, uh, whenever you see different uh, bargaining units being created that pit them against one another, mm-hmm. it's always capital. It's always management trying to split up any sort of collective uh, solidaristic activity and it works and it's very, very smart. So without those people in your bargaining unit, you know, that would be a lever for them to kind of put a wedge in. Yeah. And it's, you know, at the same time, it's incumbent on those people. um, If they want to be in the union, they got to, they're sort of, they're, they're casting their vote to be with the people below them. So that means they may have to make sacrifices sometimes, you know, so um, I salute them. (laughs) <laughs> indeed, indeed. That, that is, uh, it's a question that I thought about too during my kind of failed 
organizing drive at Spin Media. RIP Spin Media. It doesn't exist anymore. Um, Why do you guys with your unions just keep destroying perfectly good uh, <laughs> media outlets? Uh, <laughs> Why do they keep destroying perfectly good unions or potential unions? No, um, I guess uh, I, I talked a little bit about this on the show about my failed organizing drive that mainly failed because um, it was just me doing it yeah. and. Everyone was, most of the people I talked to were pretty supportive, but nobody else wanted to do anything to make it happen, which, you know, is kind of an important part of a union. You need at least two people doing things to make a union, by law, I think, yeah. I needed one more, and I couldn't couldn't (laughs) get them. But you know what? Let's talk about something optimistic, which is your unionizing job. It did not fail. So... Um, I read a little bit of your writings about this through the years. Um, what made you initially, because I know you weren't sure that you needed a union when you first started out in this field, um, how did you make the jump from doing unions as almost either this historical thing from the past or something that only traditional blue-collar fields uh, have need for to something that everybody, every worker should have, including you? Yeah, I guess I raised my class consciousness. I mean, you know, over the years I, I always wrote about sort of um, inequality and like poverty and I think really though the way I came to the realization was like um, just through asking basic questions. Like if you, anybody who starts asking questions like why do the poor stay poor and the rich get richer? Like why do rich people have all the power? Why, you know, the very basic kind of problems um, with our society like Eventually, if you ask those questions, you get back to the issue of labor, you know, and you you start to understand that, um, you know, labor needs power to balance out the power that capital has. So, I mean, I always was, like, supportive of unions, like, my dad was worked with unions for a while, and, you know, I was always behind them, but I had to kind of get to the place where I was like, you know, it's not, unions are not just something for, you know, factory workers and whatever, unions should be a basic feature of every workplace because uh, they're the only thing that create that balance of power. Um, And so when I kind of came to realize that over time, um, the Writers Guild had decided that they wanted to organize uh, the media industry, digital media specifically, and um, I had written some stuff about Vice, and uh, I met with the organizer from the Writers Guild who was trying to get leads at Vice, actually, um, and during the course of that conversation, I was just like, why don't you try to organize us? We're, you know, the same thing as Vice, basically. Um, and so we, we had a meeting, and uh, we invited like 50 people to the first meeting, and I didn't really know if anybody was going to come, if two people were going to come, and like 40 people came to that very first meeting. So it was clear that like, and I think this is true at a lot of places, um, in media definitely, is like, the, you know, the, the like latent, desire for something like that was already there, you know, it was just, it just needed a spark. And there's an institutional history there, um, because the New York Times has a union, but it was a union that was formed many, many decades ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Village Voice, again, RIP, had formed an independent union back in, I think, the late 60s, early 70s. And so print media, and I think a lot of um, also television media has traditionally been organized and kind of 
in a sense, in the di- on the digital landscape, you were trying to catch up to you know yeah, what had happened in the past. Absolutely. I mean, you know, newspapers were, were unionized in I think the, the 1930s. You know, the rise of the news guild, and there was an entire movement to really unionize the newspaper industry, and they've been going on strike for decades. And and then you know, with the rise of the internet, you had all the newspaper industry is dying, print media is dying. And the online media is rising, and we're all sitting around kind of being like, hey, we're, we're the future of media. Like, we're the new thing, and they're the old thing. But part of that, that that we didn't maybe realize at the time was like, okay, all the jobs that are being lost, a lot of these are union jobs, and these new jobs that were being created were non-union jobs, you know. So it was true that, like, um, I think people in our industry had the realization that, like, it's our time, and also this is the way you have. This a, is our time. <laughs> this is the way you have a grown-up job where you don't have to like jump from job to job every two years, you know. So totally, we're still working on it, but hopefully we'll get there one day. Well, it's interesting because the um, I have some history, some family history in the uh, paper trade, because my family for many generations were the printers, you know, old, you know, set type, you know. Mm. The, uh, International Typographical Union, and um, they had immense power on the shop floor as one of the oldest and most militant unions. And it was actually, you know, I remember this was that moment of class consciousness consciousness for me as a kid when uh, that union in New York City was destroyed through um, computerization mm-hmm. of that process. Yeah. So I guess what's interesting to me is that, in a sense, then you had the printers, and then you had the writers, uh, and you had the Teamsters who would deliver those papers. There was a kind of ecosystem, you know, where these different unions, all, you know, all obviously benefited from it uh, and also could support one another. But it seems like with digital media, there's not really, you know, it's kind of just you guys now, right? That's kind of, that's very, uh, very much like today's capitalism, right? You're just sort of like at home, writing on a computer, or in an office. There's no, like, ancillary services like a, a truck driver that you would need to yeah. interface well, with? Well, I mean, it's interesting because I think it's a it's an important point about labor in general, which is like organized labor always got to go where the economy is going. You know, organized labor always got to be where technology is going. You can't just sit on your ass and let your industry get destroyed by technology and be like, oh, all the union jobs got destroyed because, you know, we were all newspaper writers and we didn't do shit when the Internet came around. And so, like, it's, you know... We even if we unionize digital media, um, we got we got to still look around. Like, what what's the next place? Like video games. What's mm-hmm. you know tech? We need to unionize tech. And even the ancillary jobs that we have is like we have uh, at my company. You know, we have tech people. We have advertising people. We have support staff. Like, how do we get those people in our unions? Like, all those kind of questions are things that, that we always got to think about because. Um, you know, you can be the technology of the moment, and 10 years later, you're not. Um, and we've seen it so many times in labor that, like, we got to try to stay out of that trap. Yeah, like, we were t- totally, we were talking a lot about this stuff with Corey Pine, too, a couple weeks ago, mm-hmm. where a lot of the quote-unquote value created by these new tech companies is just labor arbitrage, mm-hmm. right? Like, how much, it, it, it's either you're starting an unregulated taxi company and you're finding a way around regulations, right. you're starting a newspaper with like a young, uh, politically naive workforce that's not unionized, like how much of Gawker's initial value was just that, like, oh, hey, we're going to get a bunch of 25-year-olds and not pay them very much. <laughs> yeah. Or, or Vice, which was probably even or worse. Vice. Yeah. yeah, I mean, all, all of the value, I mean, most of the value, 90% of the value was that probably a lot of these digital media 
companies. I mean, Gawker Media started in, you know, McDin's apartment with some people getting paid $12 a post. And, you know, Vice Media was famous for paying people $30,000 and giving them a ring that says Vice. And <laughs> that's all you I get. I believe it's you know? the 2020-20 rule. That's you right. hire 20 or 21, something like that. You hire 21-year-olds. You work them 21 hours a day, and right. you pay them $21,000 a year exactly. as per fucking billionaire, soon-to-be expropriated yeah. Shane Smith. Exactly, Shane Smith. We're coming for you. I mean... That's higher. That's higher. <laughs> yeah. He's doing fine. He lives in a beautiful mansion up in the... huge mansion. Yeah. Metaphorically coming And he's you. meeting with Saudi Arabia to get... Uh, oh the the nice thing about I would just say like real quick on LA and the fact that all these millionaires and billionaires live up in the hills is that there's wildfires all the time. I would never advocate violence, but you know it would be you know maybe a a possibility that all of a sudden you know they would be trapped up on top of that hill and there were fires going towards them and we wouldn't have to deal with the Shane Smiths of the world anymore. Yeah. Yeah, just saying, say. it's a geographic uh, uh, you know advantage that uh, yeah. the working class has. But anyways, moving so, on. Yeah. Um, anyway, moving on from that satire, it's very satirical and definitely satire. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it makes me happy to hear that there was that much initial interest in unionizing at Gawker because I think it, it seems silly in retrospect, but like that sort of fuck you attitude of the aughts and like cool writers in the aughts or whatever, where they're writing about like culture or politics or anything. Skateboarding, just, carving shit into your chest, doing like, cocaine. Yeah, 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 fuck you. Don't tell me what to yeah. do. I'm so cool. I don't care. Um, that doesn't necessarily translate into something class conscious. No, not at all. And actually, it was the that was like very noticeable. You know, when we first organized, was like the whole. You know, because really, like our day job is if you're a if you're a writer, if you're a blogger, especially your day job is just you come in and you're like, here's why I'm right, here's why you're wrong, fuck you if you disagree with me, you're a fucking idiot, blah blah blah. And then when you go and you have to start, like, organizing, you have to sit and listen to people and dialogue and do all this. And it was, like, a very different experience for me, definitely, and I think for a lot of people. Um, but, you know, ultimately people got to pay the rent. So Yeah. Or just the idea, well, I mean, it certainly doesn't help. I think that a lot of people in the media are sort of downwardly mobile children of the upper middle class who maybe haven't quite grasped that their downward mobility mm-hmm. is going to continue and is not sustainable on a generational level. I don't know. I wasn't working with that many people who grew up in, like, union households when I was working in yeah. India ever. Yeah. I mean, I think that's definitely true, but it's also a function of, like, the decline in unions in general, you know? I mean, we look like when 10% of people are unionized today, that means 90% of, of people are not going to grow up in union households, which is... You know, it's fucked up, and it's a it's a stumbling block when you're organizing. I mean, because you have to, you're not just uh, talking to people about why they should unionize. You're almost talking about like, what is a union? What's the point of a union? Mm. Like, you have to kind of start from square one and be like, why would we even consider this? You know, what do they do? And then you have to kind of address all the all the like misconceptions about unions that come from. 40 years of right wing propaganda. You know, our unions corrupt. The unions just want your dues money. Da da da. So that's, um, 
it's very true what you're saying. Like people don't, for the most part, grow up in union households, but it's also it's you know that's what happens when unions decline from fifty percent of the workforce to ten, you mm-hmm. know, over a half century. I mean, we we all got to start rebuilding basically. When I mentioned my grandfather earlier, I think that there's that's just my personal uh, experience, um, but I think there's a lot of folks out there that perhaps it skipped skipped a generation, and I'm thinking specifically of the uh, teacher strike in West Virginia. Because, you know, with strip mining and then, of course, the uh, big coal capitalists down there in uh, West Virginia and uh, the Appalachians, Appalachians they have a, they've destroyed all the, the unions um, around that industry. However, there is a clearly a uh, collective memory and an institutional legacy that exists where uh, when the teachers, many of them women uh, down there in West Virginia, went out on strike, they were thinking of the stories of their grandparents going out on strike. Yeah. They were wearing the sort of the bandanas and the signifiers of what had happened two generations past. So, like, it's maybe not one-to-one, but I think there is still something yeah. in this country where we know that unions do something good, even yeah. if you don't have any direct experience with yeah. them. And it doesn't always track with political parties either. Right. right? No, I don't a lot think it tracks people, at all with political parties. Yeah, because yeah. a lot of people think, oh, you know, the Democratic Party is yeah. the union party, and the Republican Party is the anti-union party, and, you know, uh, there's even been antipathy from centrist liberals towards these women organizing in red states saying, yeah. oh, well, if you really cared about your, you know, material conditions, you'd be voting for Democrats when the Democrats in those states are just as bad as the Republicans. Oh, Mnuchin's fine. Yeah. No, I mean, I did, I did a story in West Virginia like you a mean year Manchin. or two ago Manchin, yeah. about, like, kind of what you're talking about, which is, like, that, was that deep labor history in West Virginia, which I think... You know, people in West Virginia do know about. I don't. I don't think people in the nation at large know like about Blair Mountain and you know these people were like they had the biggest shooting war since the Civil War. They had in uh, West Virginia. They had bombers. Right. They were, I mean, they were bombing out of planes and like <laughs> yeah. charging up mountains and fighting the army and stuff. Yeah. And like that's how. And like there were people who there were miners who lived in company towns, they wanted to unionize, so the bosses evicted them all from their houses, and then they all had to live in tents for a year, and their tents were by the railroad tracks, and then the the boss would send a train down the tracks and shoot up the tents with machine guns. And, like, that's how bad these people wanted a union, you know, less than 100 years ago. Yeah, and if uh, folks out there haven't watched it, uh, and many of you probably never even heard of it, but there's an excellent uh, documentary from the 70s called Harlan County, USA. Mm-hmm. And it really flips the whole conception, I think, that Americans have of like who the, the union demographic is and what they look like and what they talk like. Because you have um, a bunch of like hillbillies, as you would call them, these people with these thick accents who live in the woods. And it's a, it's a documentary of their union struggle and uh, their attempt to try to like you know win gains, and they're attacked by the police, they're attacked by the bosses. But you see these you know regular ass people um, organizing together and fighting literally for their lives in the 1970s, you know, to yeah. fight still for union rights. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the actual labor history of America, I mean, it, it's actually really hopeful in a way because you know you see that America has not always been like this the way that it is now. It's not always been this like hyper consumerism. You know, that's really like a post-Reagan era thing. I feel like the, the dominance of money in American culture, you know, it's like labor has been powerful in America, and it, it can be again, I think. Absolutely. So back to your own organizing drive. Um, you, you guys got it done. 
Congratulations. Thank you. Yes. And then um, some crazy things happened at your company. Yeah. So how did uh, how did being in a union help you through that time, and how's it going now, a couple years later? Yeah, good question. Um, we actually had really good timing because we signed our first union contracts right before we got a $140 million judgment against us for a whole and sex tape, which bankrupted the company and then caused us to be sold to Univision. Um, but because Univision picked up our union contract, like everything carried over and we had stability only because we had that union contract. And is that now uh, Splinter News? Is it? Uh, sp so, uh, <laughs> there was Gawker Media. Uh, we got sued, we went bankrupt. Univision bought Gawker Media. They shut down Gawker.com, which was my website, because they were scared that Peter Thiel was going to continually sue us forever. They were probably right. <laughs> Maybe. And then they already owned a site called Fusion, ah, right. which they then shut down also, and then they launched Splinter as, to kind of fill the void. But, so. your, but your contract, or at least your collective bargaining unit, survived through all those different changes? Yes, we survived. They picked up the union contract, so like everybody's salary carried over, everybody's health care carried over, all the rules, like the editorial integrity um, protections carried over, and all that stuff carried over. And really, like the only reason we had stability in that whole transition was because we had that union contract. And now, um, we are in our final week of negotiations for our second union contract. So our union contract expires on Thursday night. Wow. And so we have two bargaining dates this week, and uh, we're super uh, hype, and the unit is very mobilized, as they say, and uh, we hope and expect to have a new contract by the end of this week. Wow. You don't have to tell us whether any industrial action uh, is in the offing. That's totally fine. Uh, but it, it is uh, awesome and amazing that people are still mobilized and super hyped. And I hope that they don't try to force some, some concessionary shit because it would be a shame for media workers have to, to have to do something like, I don't know, walk off the job or something mm, like that. Yeah. Very true. Nobody true. wants that. Nobody wants uh, that. No. And it's just making me think back uh, – bad memories to what happened to my company, which was, you know, I did it how you're supposed to. I talked to almost everybody that I could one-on-one. Then I talked to you at one of your media labor happy hours, and you're like, what are you doing? Just make a Facebook event. What are you waiting for? And I was like, oh, God, you're right. You know, I probably talked to enough people. I should just make an event now with whoever wants to come, and whoever comes, comes. Unfortunately, uh, I was in the process of making the event when I found out about the sale, which they announced, um, of course, during Christmas break, mm. when everyone was out yeah. of the office and distracted with other things. And, you know, it kind of shows what happens when you don't have a union, which is that half of the people who would have been in the bargaining unit, including people who are, like, pretty strongly supportive, suddenly lost their jobs. And, I mean, the company yeah. didn't know that we were doing any of this. This is just purely incidental. But, you know, a few of the websites got cut loose to die, and a few of them came to this new company that was much, much larger than our old company, which, I mean, Spin Media would have been an ideal size to organize because there were probably maybe 50 people who would have been in the bargaining unit. And then suddenly we're in this ginormous company that owns Billboard and The Hollywood Reporter and has a whole floor of a fucking skyscraper at Midtown, and I, I don't know anybody there, and... Also, I'm miserable at my job, as I have been for many months, and this thing is really the only thing keeping me going. And then after that, I was like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, 
it's not easy. I mean, it's such an unstable industry, and like you know, we're for sale right now. Actually, that's oh. the other fun thing is we're going to be sold like next month. So. Uh, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's hard. I mean, it's an unstable industry and you look across the whole industry and, you know, just, there was probably a thousand media layoffs in the last few weeks, right? And, uh, you know, some of those places had unions and they were happy they had a union because they got separate. Yeah, like I was going to say, yeah, that's a big deal. Some of the people who got laid off were union organizers in those drives. Do you think that's a coincidence? You know, I, I've never seen any evidence that a place... Uh, purposely fired the union organizers. Does that mean it's never happened? No. But I, I've never seen proof of it. I know if we did have proof of it, that the writers guild would definitely pursue it. Um, but you know, who knows? Honestly. Well, since like, the '80s, and we'll get into some of this history later on. I think when we talk about the future of the the labor movement at large. But uh, you know, since Reagan and Patco. Um, Replacement workers and also uh, the sort of checks that the National Labor Relations Board, that Acton Board, um, are supposed to put upon illegal practices like firing union organizers. Those have been uh, basically uh, thrown away, and so it's kind of yeah. open season. Uh, yeah, it's many really. Cases. I mean, it's you know, filing an unfair labor practice is kind of a joke these days. Well, like, you can just wait for two years while it goes up to the NLRB. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> companies know that nothing will probably happen, but I mean, I think that the media is just inherently unstable. And, you know, the good thing is, like, even though a lot of those places, like Vice and other places, you did see some of the biggest union people get laid off at the same time, their union is still there, their union is still active, their union is still strong, so... Yeah, that's, that's yeah. fucking amazing. And if I ever do, for some reason, go back into the writing business, which, you know, it's still my first choice. It always has been. Um, I'll try really hard to get a union job where it's not even fucking worth it. But um, to stay on the media tip for a minute um, before we broaden things out again, um, do you think that unions are going to help the media business and, like, journalism in general? Or is it more like we're going to give workers a softer landing when the shit inevitably hits the fan. Feather betting, as they call that in the yeah. union movement. I mean, I guess, you know, I see unions as, um, they definitely make the industry a better place to work, and they give working people a fair share of the proceeds of the industry. Um, you know, unions can't stop, like, huge macroeconomic forces that end up getting half of us laid off, you know, I mean... You can look at the auto industry or any number of industries like that were heavily unionized. Like, I don't think unions um, affect the business in the sense that they can like make the media a place where we're not getting laid off all the time. Because I think most of that is driven by technological change and you know stupid management. I mean, they can unions can help stupid management to the extent that like places are run by idiots and they do stupid things and they end up destroying the business and getting a lot of people fired. I mean, unions can actually help businesses be less stupid, which is, I think, an underrated aspect of unions. That, that well, And another thing, too, yeah. is all that turnover you guys talk about. You know, if you're going to have a stable enterprise moving forward, yeah. you know, unions can allow there to be, like, growth internal, you know, with people's skills and relationships within a workplace. Yeah, I mean, if, if companies are enlightened, like, unions are actually a great asset because a union can tell you what's happening inside your business. I mean, like, the managers or the CEO of the place doesn't know the problems with the place in the same way that the people working there do. I mean, the, 
the biggest experts at your company is the people that work there. So like a union is just, I mean, one, one thing a union is a mechanism that can talk to management and be like, hey, here's what the problems are. Like you need to fix A, B, and C. And that's an asset, you know, um, if companies are enlightened enough to see it like that. Yeah, totally. I'm also thinking about the level of independence that you, uh, particularly at what used to be Gawker, that you're fighting for, right? Because it used to be a given, like, oh, this is what journalism is. We're going to investigate the powerful and say what we find in a relatively principled and independent way. But as we all know, that's not really how things are going right now. And it seems like a union is one tool you can use to fight for the integrity of journalism itself, not to get too yeah. uh, highfalutin about it. No, definitely. And I mean, we have a we have a section on contract that's editorial integrity, which basically says that only the, the editorial side can make editorial decisions. So in other words, like we have it in our contract that the business side cannot have any input on editorial, which is a useful thing to have, you know. Sorry, Alex and Julian. <laughs> oh, and God forbid if uh, Bezos were to be controlling uh, oh the Washington Post in any sort of way, which I'm sure is happening. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Like, Gawker was a more – I don't know if we're going to see quite Gawker level of, like, uh, independence again, given, like, what happened to Gawker. Um, but, you know, hopefully the unions that are in places like the Washington Post and the New York Times and all those places – um, should be looking at. I mean, I think the the bigger problem for like uh, editorial independence is like money and you know corporate media in general and all that stuff, institutionalism and you know people going to cocktail parties with politicians and shit like that. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Well, as we're reading about uh, this stuff that's going on in Venezuela, somebody I think it was George Chicarella Mar pointed out online that the yeah that the uh, reporting was coming from Miami. Um, and that, you know, and more generally when you oftentimes, especially in foreign reporting, but also in like political DC reporting, um, it is pretty much just transcribing and rewording uh, press releases from various different, you know, uh, talking heads in like the de Defense Department or the State Department, uh, you know, that, that, that hard hitting journalism um, myth, I think, that came out from, from Watergate. Um, you know, the the, the famous uh, what, Bernstein and uh, Woodward. Woodward, yes, thank you. Um, they became legends um, for, for the great reporting that they did under, you know, Watergate, and they, they truly did do so. But um, that, I think, is more of an aberration, you know, than I think uh, yeah. the, the, the norm. Because if you go back to, you know, the beginning of professional journalism, it's so often been a handmade uh, to power. And one of the great things that I think Gawker and other digital outlets have done is they've kind of opened that space up because they don't have the same institutional constraints that say like, you know, a, a local newspaper or even a large national. Yeah. And I really hope that, you know, somebody starts the next Gawker or whatever it is, because um, you need that. Like, I mean, one of the assets of Gawker was like it had a bunch of younger people who didn't give a fuck and would just say what, what you know, it's not that we were the smartest people, but we said the stuff that everybody was thinking in their head. They just wouldn't say it, you know? And so there has to be something like that in the media. And it's hard. Like, the old, the, the longer people are in the industry and they get older and they get a mortgage and they have kids, you know, and they start thinking about their career. And when you start thinking about your career, you start thinking about, who am I offending? You know, you can't say this. You can't say that. And that's a real 
you know, the biggest censorship in media is self-censorship, I think, and anybody Absolutely. who denies that is lying to you. Yeah, <laughs> so. and, and uh, to go back again to the Corey Pine uh, book and episode that we did, he talked a lot about how bought, uh, bought out the, uh, the tech reporting is yeah. in Silicon Valley, because if, you, if you're a nice boy or girl, uh, or other, and you go and you, you know, sit down and have cocktails with the, you know, these tech giants, and you're really nice to them and write really glowing reports that are basically just like ads for their new uh, apps or items that are coming out. Someday you'll get a 250, you know, $400,000 job working in their PR, and there's right. a constant kind of turnover between those two aspects. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and the, you know, the other aspect is like to have that kind of confrontational media, there has to be a um, a way to support it, you know, there has to be a business model that can support media like that, because as you said, like, anything that's dependent on access can't be honest, so you want honest media, but how are you going to support it, so maybe podcasts. Oh my God. From your mouth well, to God's yes, ears. That's a very good segue, actually, into another question that I was going to ask. Um, well done, Alan. good think, segue. Uh, but as a sidebar, I think it also speaks to the need for some kind of larger social democratic welfare state, right? Because if journalists are constantly afraid that they're going to, like, starve to death if they write the wrong opinion, you know, they're not going to be as aggressive. If you had, I don't know, say, single-payer health care, uh, federal jobs guarantees, so, you know, you could land on your feet, uh, stuff like that, even, like, a better minimum wage for your, you know, day job that you go to while you're building your writing career, people might be a little more inclined to stick their necks out. Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah. Um, well, before we depart from media completely, I'm going to ask a big picture question about it, which is, and like, I'm sure that you have done a lot of thinking about this, and so have I, and I don't know if any of us totally has the answer, so you don't have to have all the answers. But if you do, it would be awesome. Yeah. So... <laughs> Do you think there is a financially viable model for journalism and commentary to continue? Like, I know Jonathan Chait thinks that there should be some kind of uh, nonprofit philanthropic model that's, you know, totally dependent on money for rich people. Yeah. Um, is it that? Is it uh, maybe public funding like BBC? Or is it like the folks at uh, Commune Magazine and pretty much every podcast, including this one, is betting on um, pay pig model, you know, where listeners give us money through Patreon in exchange for being sexually dominated by us. Right. Uh, it's a good question. It's an eternal question of media. I mean, I think that the answer today is that, the, like, the short, the short reason of the financial problem of media today is that Facebook and Google are taking all the money. Mm. I mean, 90% of the ad money um, online is going to Facebook and Google. So you have these these huge platforms soaking up all the money that used to go to media outlets. And that's like, in a, in a very short nutshell, is why uh, the online media is so unstable. So like, the real solution today is that you have to shave off some of the money that's going to those tech platforms and put it into journalism. And there's a lot of ways to do that. I mean, it's, you have to make a law, really. I mean, one way or another, the government has to regulate tech platforms and divert some of the money um, so that journalism can exist. Like, it's just not viable to have these huge mega companies 
that aren't media companies. You know mm. what I'm saying? They're not making any of the journalism. They're just serving it up. They're an intermediary they, platform. Right? right, and they soak it up all. I mean, like, imagine an industry where, like, 90% of the revenue is now not there anymore, and everybody's fighting over the last 10%. Like, it's not viable. So, I mean, somehow the government needs to make these big platforms, whether it's through taxes, whether it's through regulation. You have to shave off some of that money and put it back into journalism. I mean, and I think that, you know, the things like the nonprofit approach or the Patreon and all that stuff, everybody should try everything. I mean, anybody who can find something that, that works, like, my hat is off to you. You know what I'm saying? If uh, Chapo can make a million dollars on Patreon, like, I think that's fucking great, man. Um, hey, we're almost paying rent. Yes. Between the three uh -huh. of us. You so and Chapo can make a million dollars on Patreon. I think that's great. Hope so. Chapo money but when you think about, like, you know, how are we going to have, like, you know, 50,000 more journalists, like, you're going to need that money that's going to those tech platforms somehow. It's so, it's so hard, because, like, you're right. Even even if we could get a publication making, like, Chapo money, that's not a very big budget for a traditional right. journalistic outlet. Yeah, a million dollars a year, you can have, what, like five reporters or something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can't cover, like, the state house. You can't, you know, think of, like, it, like every town had a newspaper. Every town had two newspapers, you know? That's, like, uh, like medium-sized towns had, like, hundreds of reporters in them not that long ago. And today there's nothing, like, the financial infrastructure to support that. So. It, it seems to me, like, I mean, I'm biased, obviously, but... Um, some of the wiggle room there is all of the unnecessary layers of bosses telling journalists how to do their jobs and investors and, uh, I don't know, say capitalists who are making money off of ownership and not really doing anything. Yes. But wait, why are you saying that uh, honest and good and hard-hitting, uh, you know, uh, journalism is more important than uh, SEO consultants or something, right? I mean, oh where's your priority? I, I wanted to ask you, too, uh, how, how do you reconcile the usual position that you see in letters? Like, we're unionizing because we love working at this company. We love our jobs. We like working for these bosses with sort of the more long-term goal of workers taking over the companies and firing the bosses, or, you know, if you have the anti-founder mindset, yeah. abolishing wage labor altogether. Well, I mean, you know, to get the power to take over the company, you need the union, you know? I mean, the union to me is just like the entity that allows you to do stuff, and it allows you to exercise power in a collective way. So you can't, you can't sit at the table um, I mean, I think of it like, you know, when you have a company, you have like a media company, like the normal way that media companies operate is like, okay, they listen to the investors, they listen to the executives, um, and they listen to the vendors, and they listen to advertisers, and then they tell the workers what to do, you know, and when you make a union, now the union is, you got to listen to workers too, and hopefully the stronger the union gets, you know, the more of that power you can exercise, and... Well the, yeah. I, I think that goes back to um, to a point that you made earlier where you said that, um, you know, in, in a lot of circumstances uh, for a particular company or in a particular industry, a union can actually stabilize, you know, or actually be something that an enlightened capitalist would, you know, actually accept if they were to accept the, the facts and the details of it. And um, I think that's probably true if you're looking at like a short or a medium term. But as we talked about with technological innovation, 
uh, there's going to be a point where um, <laughs> concessions will have to be made because capital is moving around and uh, the company is no longer profitable. So perhaps another way to tie into this kind of larger idea of the union and where it goes would be to have something like Jeremy Corbyn uh, talked about in, uh, in his platform, uh, which would be basically if a company um, is going bankrupt or if they are selling themselves to a larger uh, conglomeration, that the workers get uh, the first shot at uh, buying that and they will yeah. be given uh, low interest loans in order to actually be able to turn that into a cooperative. Yeah, I mean, totally. I mean, cooperatives are like the, the end state of unions almost. Like if, if unions could evolve to take over the company, it would become a cooperative and that's like the perfect state of a company that can imagine. So, I mean, I think co-ops are great, like, anything we can do to encourage more co-ops. I mean, and I hear a lot of, like, lefties in media talk about we need to start uh, worker co-op media outlets, um, which is a great idea, but, like, you know, the stumbling block is how are we going to pay everybody's salary <laughs> while yeah. we're making this co-op. So, like, yes, I mean, you need that, whether it's that government program, like, low interest, like, you need, we need a hand, you know, you can't expect... A hundred, you know, you can't expect a hundred reporters to come together and be like, okay, now we have a company, but we don't have any money. Yeah, so. I, I, we'll all put second mortgages on our houses and now. sell what our we, cars yeah. and buy this yeah. company to fund. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you hear that government? The Antifada Co-op yeah. needs a hand. Oh <laughs> I mean, a hand. We're not going to count on it, but it would be nice. I wouldn't kick it out of bed. We don't want a hand up. We want a hand out. Exactly. <laughs> so I have a few more questions that I'm going to combine into one question because okay. we're short on time and you can answer however you want to. Good. So um, what are some lessons that you've learned in this organizing drive that could maybe be applied elsewhere in other fields of struggle, other industries? Um, What's your outlook on organizing the millennial generation? Because I know a lot of people in your bargaining unit were, um, as they say, millennials. Um, are we doing a good job at tackling the problem? Are we going to sit on our asses until someone invents an app that will unionize for us? <laughs> and do you think it's possible to organize within the gig economy where everybody's classified as a fucking independent contractor? Small yeah. businessman, a sole proprietor, right. if you will. Living the American dream. That is a few questions in one. I think that, I mean, the biggest lesson that I took from our union drive and our whole industry unionizing is like, you know, like I said, the latent desire for something like that is there. And so, like, whenever I talk to people that work in the union world and work in organized labor and are at the AFL-CIO and stuff like that, I'm like, you know, you have to knock on every door. You know, you have to knock on every door because because unions are small. Unions have declined. People don't know about unions. People don't know how to make a union. They don't know what a union is. But at the same time, if they learn what a union is, they want it because it's rational and it makes a lot of sense. And so, like, if you make people understand what a union is, they will unionize. And I firmly believe that. And, like, you know, it's the job of organized labor and all of us who believe in organized labor to be out there bringing that to people because people don't know what it is. You know, you can't expect people to spontaneously organize unions at their jobs, like whether millennials or not. I mean, so I think that uh, the world of organized labor and major unions have a very mixed record on how good they are at this, right? Some unions are very good at it, and probably the majority of unions are not that good at it. And so I think there's a lot of 
improvements that could be done to bring the message out to everybody. Um, and in terms of, you know, I think millennials are great. I'm not a millennial, but uh, <laughs> Me neither. I think I'm one year too old to be a millennial. But um, oh. we have a lot of arguments on the show I, to what year what, what, millennials yeah, are. What's your cutoff? I think it's in 1980. All right. That's my understanding. Okay. I was born in 80. But I was... No, 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 no. Um, I've got a theory on that. I just thought of another theory on millennials. But I'm sorry. Go on. It's a made-up cohort, so it doesn't even matter. But go on. (laughs) You're not a millennial. Just to touch on the... And the gig economy question, I think, is also a great question. Great question within media, obviously, because a lot of the media industry is freelancers. A lot of the media industry is permalancers, right? Um, That's a big issue, and that's like... You know, the Writers Guild is working on that. There's a lot of freelancers working with the Writers Guild to try to figure out how we can organize these people. Labor law sucks in terms of helping out freelancers. But, you know, I guess in the bigger picture, it's like we all have to think about, when we think about organizing, you know, you got to think about, I'm not just making a union at my place. I'm trying to unionize my industry. Mm-hmm. And even when you unionize the industry, it's like, okay, now we got to figure out how to take care of the people who can't be in the unions. You know, we got to. How are we going to take care of the freelancers who fall through the cracks? So, like, I think the union should be seen as, like, we're building the safety net for the whole industry and not just for those of us who happen to work at this place or that place, you know. So there's two fundamental strains in U.S. labor. So there's business unionism and social unionism. So what you're talking about are two things that exist today, although business unionism is much more, unfortunately, prevalent than social unionism. Uh, but you do see social unionism coming back when teachers unite with, um, you know, the parents of the kids and they're fighting for more, you know, for smaller class sizes. That is social unionism. And I agree that uh, that is something that we need to fight to bring back because that was really what built our whole thing. I would say real quick, I mean, far be it for me as a union construction worker to tell you media folks uh, what you should be doing no, with your lives and help. with your practice. I think you've made some interesting analogies in the past from uh, union construction work to being a freelance writer, actually, because you, too, have many different bosses yeah, here yeah. and are something of a free agent, and yet you have benefits. How does that work? I am a man who journeys. <laughs> I am a journey man. Um, the, uh, you know, there's never a one-to-one uh, correlation here, but you know, when I think about how to kind of square this circle between you know, what you're talking about, between the fact that folks are uh, often precarious uh, that oftentimes they're freelancing for all these different companies, um, and also that you have to have a critical mass within that particular industry of media in order to have any real effect, you know, and not just create another, like, maybe a little bit larger crust of, you know, folks at the, at the very top. And in the trades, you know, which are 150 years old, so it, it's like there is a real legacy there, and, um, of course, I have a very conservative union, but in the trades, it's basically if you go through the training, uh, if you prove that you have the skills through either an apprenticeship or uh, a sponsorship that says uh, a letter that says like this person has the skills to be an electrician or a carpenter or iron worker, whatever it is, uh, you're brought into the union and you pay your monthly dues, your quarterly dues, and then you pay a portion out of your paycheck. But what you have is um, companies are uh, signatories, right? So up until you know 30 years ago. 100% of the large construction companies were signatories with the building trades, which meant that we had pretty much monopoly on all the big work. You know, not like home renovation, but, you know, everything substantial in the city. 
And the way it works with us now is if I've got the card in my pocket right now, but if I have my union card, um, you know, sometimes I work for one company a year, but sometimes I'll work for 12. But as long as all of those are um, signatories to the contract, I could go from one to another and still have them paying into my benefits, still get the same wage that everybody else would get, right, uh, within my union. And, you know, I think for media, for the media landscape, perhaps it would make sense to kind of try to think of it in those terms. The only problem, I think, is, is that you, we're geographically set, right? You can't build buildings in China and have them made in New York, at least not yet. They'll probably prefab them at some point, and then I'll go, I don't know, starve somewhere. We're going to go uh, to Mexico, babe. All of our yes, patrons well, are going to get money <laughs> if we move to Mexico. Yeah, but, um, you know, until that happens, you know, like, we have this kind of geographical jurisdiction. Uh, that we have, and uh, you know, maybe that's a stumbling block, but maybe there's something about that model that you think could potentially work in yeah, media. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting as you talk about it because it's the same model that the Writers Guild has in Hollywood, mm. which mm. is you know, which is two very different industries, honestly, but the, but the same uh, labor model, which is they have one big contract, all the Hollywood studios sign on to it, and then all the writers get you know, union standard. I mean, which is why I, like I always hated like Hollywood. For being so bougie until I joined the Writers Guild, and I'm like, like from a labor perspective, Hollywood is kind of great because they unionize top to bottom. Every piece of that industry is union, they, and they have the same thing that you're talking about, which is a big contract with signatories. So, yeah, I mean, it could work in the media. I guess you know, you have to make strong unions first, mm. right? You got to have unions in your industry, not just the density of unions, but the, the strength of those unions to make all those big companies come to the table, you know? Yeah, which brings us to, I think, something that's going to loom large over the rest of our discussion, which are the sort of larger tactics and strategies up, into, up to and including the strike, which uh, ultimately is the workers' greatest power. Pew, 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 pew. Whether you're in New York or Hollywood or Bangladesh or the recent wave of strikes that just happened on the uh, northern uh, Mexican border, uh, there was a whole... Thousands and thousands of workers went on strike um, in uh, the Malquiladoras down there. So wherever you are, obviously, there's the most power in withholding your labor collectively. So while we're talking about the subscriber model of media, um, that reminds me that I just want to remind everyone that our show relies on your support. So if you like what you hear and you want to help us keep on doing it, you can sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash the Antifada. And uh, I just want to remind everyone, we have a goal that we're trying to hit, not to be too, like, corporate about it, but um, our worker-owned co-op is looking to have the magical number of 666 patrons. Totally arbitrary number that Jamie picked, and we don't know why. By a mayday. We're recruiting a new crop of super soldiers for Mayday. So anyone who signs up at the $5 tier or above between now and then, or, you know, if you're already signed up, hit us up. That's fine, too. Uh, we'll send you a pack of stickers in the mail, and people seem to like the stickers. So. You will get an Antifada prize pack. And once again, huge shout-out to the two people who 
continue to be on our joke tier, uh, the PayPig tier, which I guess isn't a joke to everybody at $100 a month. Big thanks to Michael T. and to Auto Buddhist. Yeah, you no are amazing. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> so a uh, big shout out. And uh, we've got, again, big things uh, coming down the pipe, including perhaps a live show, but that's for another time. Yeah, thank you, everybody. Thank you so seriously. much. We're coming a great up. Deal. $5 a month. Yeah. I think yeah. so. We're making yeah. deals. Making deals left and right. Everyone says it's the best deal. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of yeah. this project. This so thing of ours, La Cosa Nostra. Very exciting to me that um, people are listening. So I yeah. hope that people continue to do so and maybe give us money if you want to. If you want. If not, no that's pressure. fine. That's fine. Just pirate it. It's fine. That's fine. <laughs> that is the mindset. It is actually the mindset. So, yeah, can't get but do remember, again, it's a freelance uh, writer, a bike messenger, and a lonely construction worker who are running this co-op. So yeah. Every little bit helps. That's true. We don't have trust funds. So it's not often that we get to celebrate uh, large and definitive victories in the U.S. left. So I just want to take a moment to feel happy about how we somehow managed to kill Steel. I mean, I say we, like, I really played a big part in it. Only, you know what, come to think of it, um, just the day before, I believe, the day before the deal was killed, we were talking with Corey Pine on this very show mm -hmm. about uh, Jeff Bezos. We were making fun of his hog. Mm -hmm. We kind of had his number in terms of the end game of our technocratic overlords. And, and his did, phone number. We did call him after the show and leave a strongly worded voicemail. And, and we did say, you know, these people, you, they're not all powerful yet. Like, we can still fight them. So, um, I don't want to take all the credit. Shout out to you. But, like, oh, thanks, yeah, man. the timing it, is the It means a lot coming from you. <laughs> we took that corporate overlord down. We're, yeah. we're, we're willing to accept, you know, the, yeah. the kudos for that. It's funny, like, Amazon just was not ready for New York City. Just, it, they, they, like, for all the reasons that you can go into of why they pulled out, like, basically they just couldn't handle the heat of New York City talking about you. That's it. Our shit talk is legendary throughout <laughs> the world. It's true. It sure as fuck is. Don't talk shit to a New Yorker in a shit talk contest because yeah. you're going to lose. It really shows how much they fucking, they needed that uh, $3 billion break and this, that, and the other thing that they just pulled out without even, like, negotiating or whatever. They're just like, fuck yeah. this. We're, we're out. It was funny. Like, I actually inter I, I was, I interviewed a city councilman uh, last week and asked him about this. Brad Lander is like a good, pretty good city councilman, and he was like, one thing he pointed out on top of everything was like, you know, what they were really asking for was like for the democratic review process to be rigged. Like that was literally their request was like, oh, you're gonna make us go through this review process, which is part of the government, which everybody has to go through, but you have to guarantee us what the outcome's gonna be before the process happens. And when they wouldn't guarantee the outcome. They pulled out, and it's like even if you're a you know if you're a politician, even if you're a Republican, you got to be like, damn. I mean, I'm part of the government, and they're literally asking the government to not do its job. It's worked in Seattle. It's worked uh, state by state. It's worked nationally. I mean, this uh, giant corporation is uh, taking up more and more space uh, economically, but also politically. So we showed that what happens when you come to our shit talking town. Yeah. I'm walking here. There was a big. Uh, I mean, speaking of labor, there was a big debate after Amazon pulled out between 
the Retail Workers Union, which is trying to unionize uh, where Amazon warehouse workers in Staten Island, and 32BJ, mm-hmm. which is you know one of the most powerful unions in New York, uh, which had a deal with Amazon to have unionized building workers in the Amazon uh, building, you know, that they were going to build. Um, but none of the union workers would actually be Amazon employees, and so uh, the retail workers were protesting against Amazon, and 32BJ was was holding rallies to support Amazon, which was a pretty bad look in my opinion. But you know, the head of 32BJ, like to to his credit, although I disagree with him, um, was very vocal and and had a lot of conversations with people after Amazon pulled out. And his point of view was that it would have been good to get Amazon in here because then it'd be Easier to organize them. And I did say that on the show, but that. Well, we will we'll never know. We'll never know. But on the tip of the building trades being the worst. Um, hey, that's your health insurance. <laughs> I know, I know, but they are the worst. I'm sorry. Um, no comment. <laughs> so you wrote in uh, Splinter about the deal, um, about like all the machinations going on with different conflicting messages from unions. Uh, now the unions have decided to become public advocates for Amazon in order to get their piece of the pie and sacrifice goodwill and credibility in exchange for nothing. And I think the only pushback that I would have on that is that they didn't have that much goodwill and credibility in the first place. Yeah, I mean, the building trade's probably not. But 32BJ is actually a really good... Organizing union, progressive union. Majority POC. Like in terms of, you know, politics aside, but like how they act as a union in terms of organizing people and getting getting strong deals for like these low wage workers is actually really great. So that's that's actually the only thing that made it interesting to me is that they're I consider them to be a really good union in that sense. So the fact that he was the guy who was coming out saying, like, bring Amazon, bring Amazon. I mean, to hold a pro Amazon rally while the guy from Amazon is inside the city council saying we're going to oppose unions <laughs> right. is, like, indefensible to me. I, I can't get behind that no matter who you are. But, yeah. like, to, he at least had a sort of rationale, you know. Yeah, to put things into context, uh, 32BJ and their Purple Shirt Army, you know, you love to see them out on the streets, they actually hosted a lot of the meetings uh, that happened, organizing meetings around Occupy. So I've been in the basement of that building many, many times, and they yeah. gave space and they gave support, obviously, yeah. and would send people down. So they are very uh, progressive. The uh, SEIU in New York City, uh, the Transit Workers Union, and the CWA are probably the three kind of big dogs when it comes to that social unionism. And I do not take it as an um, insult when we talk shit on the building trades. I will not mention what particular trade it was, but I remember maybe it was like 10 years ago, um, the city was going to um, give away uh, to developers a, uh, the Bronx Armory, the South Bronx Armory. Right. And uh, all the unions lined up and said, you know, you can sell that, uh, you know, this developer that for a dollar and, you know, renovate it and turn it into shops. But we want to guarantee that every single retail or service job in that armory is a union job. And every single union lined up except for particular one in the building trades, which I may or may not be part of. And uh, ultimately, you know, that demand scuttled that deal as well. So this Amazon thing and, and the kind of structural and material differences between different factions of labor have been around forever, but you've seen these express themselves over and over in New York City. And I think it shows, you know, something about 
the, I don't know, the, the kind of the overdetermined structure of, of unionism, you know, under capitalism, especially in the United States, where we organize by pattern bargaining, where the building trades are so um, broken up by jurisdiction yeah. that I've had shop stewards whose whole job you know, on a big job site is to walk around and catch other trades doing our work. And it's only our work because we went up, you know, to a board at one point and proved that it was our work. But if that other union, if they're local, if they're able to prove that they do more of that work on a job than we do, then the next time they get that jurisdiction and we lose that work. And we're constantly fighting back and forth. Don't stomp on my work. I had my shop steward at one point in time. And again, I'm not going to reveal my trade. But uh, some other trade was uh, using a hammer on uh, one of the things that we were putting up, and they're not allowed to use, to touch our work whatsoever. I had a shop steward, as the guy swung the hammer up in the air in this other union, grab the hammer out of his hand and throw it uh, into into the concrete. Um, wow. And that's how intense things get. You get guys on the on the job who honestly should be uniting and there is a lot of solidarity even despite all this yeah. but you have them fighting over like this is my work this is there you know red faces people yelling and screaming fights i've seen break out over this stuff and that's just like a structural issue that labor faces this competition between them in a competitive capitalist marketplace for scarce jobs zero yeah. sum games zero sum games it's crazy i mean Building trades obviously has that reputation as like the most transactional sort of yes. faction of, of the union world. But then like when you look at you know, you look at unions like SEIU or Unite Here that that are more progressive and you know, it's not like they're millionaires, you know, like they're like if the janitors and the hotel workers and the maids can like line up and be progressive, the like nurses. the nurses can, the teachers can, like there's no reason why everybody can't. I mean, we all gotta we all got to line up, you know, so, I mean. It's tough, and, you know, there's the, all these dividing lines. Like we talked about business versus social unionism before. Business union unionism is that transactional thing you were talking about where, uh, especially in the trades, but in, you know, other unions too, will undermine whoever else, whether it's the community or whether it's uh, other unions, uh, you know, in order to get their peace. And the union is seen as a transactional thing with a membership as well. It's like there's a lot of the mentality of people that I work with is that like I pay dues so that they can do this service for me so that I can get more money every time the contract comes up and I can get better health care if possible. And you go to maybe one meeting or two meetings a year and it's more just like an intermediary to sell your labor, you know, to, to the business. Whereas social unionism, you know, has a very long history in this country and as you said is not gone and that is the conception that labor is more labor unions are more than simply a uh, service for workers to get more but they are in fact this um, element of the social struggle in order for everybody to get more yeah. and there's been this kind of back and forth and push and pull you know for got 160 170 years in this country oh, and that's an analysis that people still don't have I think like, even, you'll hear left liberals like Elizabeth Warren pay lip service to organized labor, or even, like, I heard Tom Perez do it at Aussie Fest, yeah. um, but they still kind of view it as, like, another special interest group, and they view class as just another identity, while I think folks like you and us have more, uh, a, a more systemic understanding that class, like, the working class, is more than just an identity. It's more than an interest group. It's like the backbone of how the world economy and system of yeah. production is structured. Yeah, and I mean, it really, 
you know, that mentality that you're talking about, business unionism and, and, and just seeing unions as playing an economic function, you know, unions exist to give me more money, which is an important part of oh, unions. Oh, sure. I mean, That's why I'm in one. That, <laughs> yeah. but like, that mentality also has contributed a lot to the decline of unions. I mean, the, the fact that unions have declined so much, um, you know, since the 70s, is there, there are a lot of reasons behind it, but, you know, partly it's that if you only see yourself as existing to serve your members, then the, the compulsion to organize new members is not really is not really that strong. You know, if you see yourself as we're a group that exists to help our members get more money, then you don't really care if you organize the next 50,000 or the next 100,000 people because they're not your members now. Like, you, you know, you can take it or leave it. And that's, that's one of many reasons why unions are dying slowly. And so, I mean, you're absolutely right. Like, you know, well, we, we, need, we need a lot of upheaval. We do need a lot of upheaval. I think that might be like my big takeaway from this. Should, should I do any labor history stuff right now? Should I put on my hat or where do you want to go next? Well, yeah, let's go to the article that Hamno, as we like to call him. <laughs> are you offended uh, by Hamno? Is that yeah, your. That's, yeah, that's okay. Yeah, we'll call you Hamno from now on. That's, always, that's what we've called you for a decade. So. Yeah, that's, <laughs> our, that's our, uh, our secret nickname for you. Yeah, so it's a real secret. Like it. um, <laughs> Nobody used it online every single day. Yeah. <laughs> okay, um, no, you wrote a piece that I thought was very good um, at The Guardian where you talk about how it's really important for workers to build their own institutions basically independent of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, of any political party. Um, and I think we talk about that a lot on the Antifada. I think that's very true. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, and I guess, you know, what I was writing about specifically was the AFL-CIO, which is um, the big, you know, the biggest coalition of unions in America today. And I guess um, the reason I think about the AFL-CIO a lot is not because I think the AFL-CIO is perfect by any means, but just, you know, by process of elimination, like, they got 15 million members, you know? So, like, to the extent that there is a, a representative of organized labor in America, it's the AFL-CIO. Like, that's just how it is. So, um, you know, I, I feel like the fastest route to improving organized labor is to make the AFL-CIO better rather than saying, you know, I think it's perfectly rational to say we should build something better than the AFL-CIO. Makes a lot of sense, and a lot of obviously a lot of big unions have spun off and left the AFL-CIO for exactly that reason because of the flaws. But at the same time, if you're like, how are we going to double or triple the amount of union members in America? To me, the the shortest path is via the AFL-CIO. They got 15 million members. They got a lot of resources, and they can do a lot if they had good leadership. And they, I think. Um, uh, are run primarily by bureaucrats and you know I think all this has to be in context like I don't think the head of the AFL-CIO is my enemy I don't think Richard Trump is a bad guy I mean he's, he's beautiful mustache he's beautiful mustache that's his primary attribute and, he's you like know, he our like, John Bolton he's done a lot of great things like we're not on different sides you know but but we're in a time when um, the decline of unions in America is a crisis. Like, to me, I think of it like climate change. You know, it's like a slow-moving crisis, and because it moves slowly, people don't think of it in crisis terms, and then one day we're all going to die. And so, like, you need some – we need, like, urgency. We need, like, people who are going to pound the table. We need people who are going to excite 
millions of Americans who don't give a shit about unions and, and get them thinking about unions. And, you know, that person is not Richard Trumka. And, like, we need more radical people inside the AFL, take the resources the AFL has, not take it away from being a lobbying organization primarily, and orient it toward organizing and making new union members, you know. Or, you know, turn over the keys to someone who can do that, as you write in the... Yeah. (laughs) Easier said than done. I'm I'm learning. Well, the... um, If I could put my hat on for a second. Um, I don't don't disagree. Um, If you look at the history, there's two points I want to make. The first is a more recent point, and... um, People have been thinking that for a long time because it is an obvious solution. You have this mass umbrella. It's not quite an organization. It's an umbrella of different unions, the AFL-CIO, and the leadership are often self-interested and way too tied to the particular uh, party that is not a labor party in this country but pretends to be one, the Democratic Party. Uh, So the the conception is that we need a a new unionism within the uh, AFL-CIO. You saw in uh, right after NAFTA passed, actually, a guy named John Sweeney, who comes out of that SEIU uh, tradition, um, who was a reformer. Uh, he was a militant, and um, he kind of he there. Making a long story short, there was an insurrection against the old guy Kirkland, who was like a typical bureaucrat, didn't do much against NAFTA. He was actually, I think, like in another country visiting somewhere else while NAFTA was being passed. He didn't even care you know, that much about it. And unions were in decline, and people saw this crisis you're talking about. And they uh, elected Sweeney to be the president of the AFL-CIO. And what Sweeney did was uh, exactly what you said, uh, maybe not on the scale that you're talking about, uh, they put a bunch more money into organizing, put $20 million immediately into it, uh, set up all sorts of rules for the affiliated unions that said a certain percentage of your money had to go into organizing new members. There's this huge push. The left was like super hyped on it. They thought this is a new AFL-CIO. Unfortunately, what ends up happening is that um, what Sweeney and company did was they wanted to mobilize the membership in order to organize and win a contract. Right. They wanted to have a militant um, rank and file on the streets in order to get them into the AFL-CIO, into the SEIU, uh, into, you know, the Teamsters or whatever it was. But I think the stumbling block, one of them, one of the ones they ran into there was that they were content at that point in time because of the nature of the AFL-CIO and organized labor in this country that once that process of getting a union stopped, they didn't want any more militant activity. So you see this specifically, right? So there's this group of uh, janitorial workers in Los Angeles right after Sweeney comes up, and this is in the SEIU, so this is his territory, right? The, uh, the service workers. And they organize thousands of uh, Latino um, janitors, right? And they bring them into the SEIU. Well, they win their contract, and these Latino men and women, they go uh, into the SEIU as part of like a very large bargaining unit where a lot of their power is diluted. Um, and what those Latino workers primarily start to do is they don't stop being militant, is they go and they start to kind of like challenge the power of that particular local. They start to basically make enough noise that it looks like they're going to go and they're going to win and have this militancy they saw on the streets continue. Yeah. And that's... Radicals in the Barrio. And it goes back to our episode with Justin Ager's Chuck Hone. Check it out. And this is where I think the limitations of this show is because the AFL-CIO is this large bureaucracy, and Sweeney himself could not see that kind of unionism arise 
after the struggle was won for a contract. They took that particular SEIU local, they put it in trusteeship, they eliminated the entire uh, leadership of it, and then they eliminated that local just to stop those militant workers from taking control over that and actually creating a real democracy on the ground. So that's like a counterpoint to the thing where I don't disagree that leadership is important, but it's also it's about a strategy and a mentality that says that once you you can't simply activate people right in order to win a contract, but once you have done that, you have to deepen the d democracy and continue the militancy moving forward, right. so that you are consistently and constantly building power at the grassroots on a rank and file level yeah. and pushing things forward from there. Yeah, it's a real issue. I mean, you're you're absolutely right about that. I know so many people who work, you know, when you, you talk to people who work in the labor movement and who work in unions, and, like, what I tend to find is, like, the, the organizer level of people in unions are super militant and are very ideological, and they believe in all this, and then when you go up to the top of unions, you know, you hit the, the level of bureaucracy that kind of puts the brakes on all that, and there's so, you know... Even when I talk about, like, hey, let's fix the AFL, like, the most cynical people about that is, like, union organizers. They'll be like, yeah, right, good luck. You know, like, um, probably because they, they know what it's like from the inside. So, like, um, I think it's true what you're saying. Um, maybe it's a case of, like, throw everything against the wall and see what sticks. I mean, or maybe, you know, like, the 1995 is different from 2019. You know, that that's entirely yeah. possible. And, I mean, the other thing is, like, the, the people who are ideological in the labor movement, um, you know, I also know a lot of people who sort of left unions to sort of start quote unquote alt labor things, you know, which is like workers workers centers yeah. or, or other kind of groups to try to organize workers in different ways. And, you know, I see them sometimes interact with union people and it, it, it's what you're talking about, which is the union people will just be like, how is this going to translate into union members? And they're like, no, we're talking about, you know, helping workers in this way and helping workers outside of normal chan. And unions can be very single-minded in terms of, like, how does this translate into membership, period. So. Well, I think that this points to something that's structurally wrong with um, organized labor to the extent that it is organized in this country still. It's not a movement, but, uh, you know, they call it a labor movement. I think one of the structural issues uh, that you see is one that I think is, is built into labor law in the United States because we have a very particular setup here, and it's a very old one, and I think it's more and more anachronistic. But basically what happens is um, no matter how militant, no matter how radical you are, uh, you move from that organizing phase, maybe you're a business agent or a shop steward, you know, maybe you're going out and you're organizing new, you know, shops or whatever the case may be, but then you rise to be vice president or then you rise to be the president, maybe you even go higher up, you know, into the Central Labor Council or you go all the way out to, you know, Washington, D.C. and you're working uh, besides Trumpka. What happens is that as you get this separation between the rank and file of a union that has to work every day, and live every day off of the money they make on that job. Once there's a separation between their livelihoods and what they experience day to day, and a different group of bureaucrats that are above that, who, let's just be honest, they will still be driving Cadillacs and uh, have chauffeurs and a really nice wage and probably like giant bags of cocaine, regardless of whether the rank and file gives back 5% on the next contract. What happens is the bureaucracy ends up becoming a sort of force in and of itself where the survival of the union itself right, is more important to them yeah. than the actual rank and file and the membership. 
And I think you see this over and over. Because, and I don't think it's because, again, like all leftists want to say, oh, it's a betrayal. You know, we just didn't have the right people. There is something structural about that where when there is this separation between even the most militant rank and file, you know, and a leadership that is primarily interested in getting more members, they can get more dues, they can grow larger, or if it's a bad economy or if capital's pushing back, giving up concessions, giving up health care, giving up work rules or whatever. Like there's something baked into the process that is not fixable under this current regime. Yeah. I mean, it might just be the nature of all institutions in the world. I mean, <laughs> it's like the more the more established and powerful and wealthy an institution gets, the more it wants to preserve itself. And I mean, you absolutely see that in the union world. I mean, I can see that in probably every union I can think of. And I don't know, man. I, you know, you need a movement. Like everybody talks about the labor movement, but like you need people who are committed to that idea that this is a movement. You know, this is not just a thing, a house that we build that we're all going to live in. You know, this is something that we got to keep growing. Yeah, and I said before I had two things, and the other historical thing is, um, again, this doesn't uh, counter completely your, your argument, but it's something to think about, it was the rise of the Congress of Industrial Organizations. Um, there had been a move, there had been industrial unionism in the United States, uh, and it got murdered by the capitalist class, especially in the open shop drive of the 1920s. As the Great Depression hit, you know, the American Federation of Labor was the only you know, the only dog still alive in the race. And it, it was small, but it would still have the power, you know, like, like uh, the AFL-CIO does today. And it was a craft business, uh, pure and simple unionism, bread and butter unionist uh, group, mostly building trades, but other sort of crafts, you know, within it. And um, more and more it became clear within the Great Depression that uh, there was the need to industrial or industrially organize, which is to say get everybody within a particular workplace, no matter how big it is, no matter what their task is, no matter how skilled they are, if they're skilled or semi-skilled, to get them together into one big union, right, that can then fight solidaristically across the kind of, you know, bond, the, the binds of um, their particular job uh, on the shop floor, their race, their gender, whatever it is. And you started to see a push within the AFL for this kind of unionism. There's a famous moment in labor history. It happened in Atlantic City, and I believe it was 1933, where uh, the head of the uh, miners' union, the famous uh, John L. Lewis, uh, maybe the most one of the most famous labor leaders in U.S. history, and I think it was uh, Hutchinson was the was the name of the leader of the carpenters' union. They were fighting back and forth about this idea of you know craft versus industrial unionism. All these delegates on the floor are like, we have to go out and organize the unorganized. We have to start being militant. We have to go out there and fundamentally shift things because people are starving out there and we need to go organize. And there was a lot of back and forth. And at one point, Hutchinson, the craft union carpenter leader, uh, said to, uh, to Lewis something like, uh, you know, we don't want to go out and like bring a bunch of mixed potato eating mix into our organization. So John L. Lewis uh, punches the guy in the face. Uh, he puts a cigar in his mouth and he strains his tie and he says if you're not going to do it we'll go out and do it ourselves and he brings a large portion of the AFL experienced leadership out of that convention and forms a new group the CIO which then subsequently goes on to organize those semi-skilled workers white black Latino men women in the factories that have been ignored by the AFL and it goes and it turns into the most militant moment of labor struggle in the United States where 8 million workers are organized. 
And I would add, too, you know, that these were experienced people within the AFL that break to go form the CIO. The AFL itself, in the course of this militant struggle that the CIO helps to create, gets millions of more members as well. So it doesn't just work well for these like radicals. Many of them were communists and socialists and anarchists within the CIO, but the entire labor movement grows at that point in time. So that sort of, you know, again, nothing, history doesn't repeat itself, but there is a history of folks breaking away and being able to like organize and you know form uh, new organizations. But there's also examples of like change to win, which was comes out of the 1990s, which was a failure yeah. uh, in order to revitalize the, the union movement. So again, these are just sort of these are anecdotes from history that kind of give us a, a an eye maybe towards what we can yeah. do. But I don't have any grand solutions myself. Yeah, you know? I don't have any grand solutions either. I mean, the good thing it's a good thing if it, once you get into unions is like. The fact that 90% of people are not in unions means there's a lot of opportunity out there. So like, there's there's plenty of work for anybody of any of any orientation who wants to get into unionizing. Man, there's plenty of places for everybody to work. And like I think maybe one point that I would take from you is just that uh, you know people who are leftists or if you have some real ideological beliefs, you know. Put that into the union world. I mean, unionize your workplace. I always mm-hmm. try to tell people, you know, like, unionize your workplace. Like, don't just, like, if you want a political action that really accomplished something, unionize your workplace, man, because you can do that anywhere. It doesn't matter if you work at McDonald's or where you work. Like, if you unionize your workplace, that's a real thing. Respect you for giving it a shot. <laughs> <laughs> I was up against a lot. I tried so hard. And you know what? I might have gotten it done. You're not supposed to be able to do it like that, but I still might have managed to pull it off if the sale hadn't happened yeah. when it did. But, you know, I had to try. Um, yeah, I think I want to square the circle a little bit, maybe, um, before we move on to electoral politics. Oh, my God, we're really going to do maybe it. maybe we'll just wall that off in the moment yeah. and people can pay if they want to hear try to, about electoral We try to create, not. like, a Trump-free zone on our podcast because everybody else in the world is always uh, talking yeah. about Trump and You're electoral politics. Yeah, we're we doing tried. all right. First mention, yeah, we, it's been a while. Uh, we mentioned him more than others. Yeah. Well, we do not mention him at all. But um, what I was going to say was uh, that is a strategy that the DSA is engaged in right now, and I know you recently joined, so congratulations. Congrats. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Um, we'll, we'll take them. Uh, the <laughs> Jamie's in charge of your dues. <laughs> Give me your money. She's just going to spend them on drugs. Definitely not. Don't give her any handouts. She's just going to use them on drugs. Yeah, no. I have, my drug budget is very much separate from my budget for the revolution. Thank you very much. But um, what I was going to say was um, the DSA, especially the labor branch, is very involved in trying to get more leftists into unions and maybe create some sort of bottom-up struggle for greater democracy. Um, there are also people whose job it is to help you organize if you don't know what you're doing, right? You don't have to do it by yourself. Um, and if anyone listening is wondering what to do about organizing their own workplace, um, there are plenty of very friendly people in the DSA labor branch who would be very, very happy to talk to you about this. Like, this is their favorite shit. But I, I think how you square the circle in what we're talking about is... Right, as long as we still have capitalism, we're probably going to have a third model of unionism that 
maybe it's the best we can do. Um, and, it, you know, in a similar way to the cycle of, like, activism, reform, uh, militant struggle in general, um, we're going to keep needing people to come up from the bottom and agitate to change the leadership and flush out the bad, right, get rid of, cut, cut off the dead wood, so to speak, make the unions more democratic again. Um, we've seen plenty of instances through history where people had to strike against their own unions. Um, I read about it in um, Aquila Zone in Mexico. These women had to do it in the 90s in order to get what was owed to them, and they had to come up against a very powerful, I mean, it was a union, but it was like a fake union that was in cahoots with the ruling party, the PRI. Um, we've seen our friends just, just the other day, I saw our friend Wilson talking about how um, CUNY struggle, the more radical elements, the CUNY grad students union, um, they're being asked to stop representing uh, 7K or strike as the official union position, right? Because that's their position, but the union is like, oh, no, 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 let's, let's not get ahead of ourselves. And like, there's, there are so many examples of people coming in and needing to do that. So like, I think long term, uh, we're, we are going to need to abolish the relationships that give rise to the need for this kind of unionism in the first place. But, you know, maybe in the meantime, we can at least have some kind of cycle so every 10 years or so we get new blood in there. Yeah, like a jubilee for uh, labor leadership. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> cut off all the heads every decade. Yeah, sounds good to me. Head rolling jubilee, <laughs> that's right. I mean, I've been on Wildcat Strikes before. You guys want to hear Wildcat Strikes? Huh? Yeah. Not on the sheet, but... That's fine. No, no one wants to hear about wildcat strikes. I would like strikes. to hear a quick story about a wildcat strike. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. Uh, we were uh, sitting in the shanty one day, which is where you, like, hang out, and you're when you're not working, you take your breaks, and there was a ton oh, of... we know all about the shanty. Oh, uh, you know about the shanty. That's oh, sexy, sexy, shanty. we know what happens in the shanty, all right? Indeed. Uh, almost social space <laughs> that I could never have access to unless perhaps I dress up like a boy, question mark. Definitely not going to There are tradeswomen, so if you want to get an apprenticeship, I can help you out with that. You made it sound very homosocial. It's so. very homosocial. I know there are tradeswomen, <laughs> but I don't picture them in the shanty anyway. <laughs> there was a woman in the shanty at the time, I will say. And uh, we everybody got at the same time a, um, a phone call from the union, and it said... Um, if you are working under such and such contract, because there's different contractor associations that are bargained with, so sometimes, uh, anyways, if you're in this particular situation, stop work now and leave the job, you're on strike. So there was some confusion from everybody about, are we part of this or are we not? It was like a thousand workers walked out, but we're like three and a half thousand. And people made phone calls and started calling everybody, what's going on, what's going on, are we going on strike, are we going on strike? And eventually everyone just walked. Right, because there wasn't clear, which was a wildcat strike. Uh, the next day, uh, we everyone starts to get phone calls and says like anybody who is not under these specific conditions, like under this con specific league, you know, of contractors that we're you know bargaining with, must go back to work immediately. And subsequently, it turns out we found out that uh, it wasn't just us, but for the next couple of days, uh, people in our trade. Um, hundreds of them shut down most of Manhattan, whether they were supposed to or not. And guess what that particular league uh, was willing to do after that that they weren't before? To negotiate and to 
you know, stop those concessions. So we had a, um, a, a sanction strike turn into a wildcat strike, and uh, you know what? It helped things out because they were trying to twist our balls, and uh, we twisted them right back by shutting down Manhattan. Yeah. It's good for unions for the members to be a little out of control. So mm. then the people in the union can be like, whoa, like, I can't control these people. Man. That's a huge thing that you yeah. see through history, right? It's like, do you want to deal with them out there with the baseball bats, exactly. you know, or do you want to deal with us reasonable people in suits? Right. It's a, it's a dialectic. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like I use the D word too much, but uh, you said it, not me. Yeah, there's an interconnected, mutually reinforcing relationship between the leadership of these unions and a militant rank and file. It's fair to say that. I'm sorry to sidebar with a fun story about a wildcat strike. No, what, what do you got it. for us? What, really do you, what do you got for us? That's so good. Um, no, nothing could ever be as good as a wildcat strike. Yeah. Um, we saw Saxophone. the effect of a wildcat stickout just recently, right, when the aviation workers ended the shutdown. Mm, Nobody sure wants to give him credit for that in the mainstream media. But Look, Nancy Pelosi did it herself by standing strong in the Senate against Trump. All right, to, to talk about those stewardesses. She's our Khaleesi, it's yeah. true. Yeah, she's Khaleesi our Khaleesi. Khaleesi Pelosi stop, ended the shutdown. Stop erasing women's voices and don't talk about the airline workers who stopped the shutdown through direct action. All I will say is the next time, all these unions now, all the aviation unions now should get together and be like, the next time there's a shutdown, we're going to walk on the first day. Of the oh, shutdown. fuck yeah. And there wouldn't be any more shutdowns. The, like, that's, this is lesson. These yeah. are lessons that, like, I think that, you know, we had talked about, like, these previous cycles of struggle, you know, that, that birthed the, the union movement in the United States. And we talked about some history. But these are these sort of teachable moments now that these new generations of militants rising up, whether you're organized, you're trying to organize, or you're just, you know, taking lessons and trying to, you know, make your life and everyone uh, else's life better. You can look at what happened there in that moment. And that's a teachable moment for everybody. Yeah. And hopefully we're relearning a lot of lessons that we forgot. Yeah, like I, I mean, I came in pretty, uh, pretty hot when I started at the Majority Report, but like it's basically a liberal show, and I'm talking all this talk about how you know we the workers have the power to shut shit down. It's not just about who's on the Supreme Court. It's not just about who's in the Oval Office. Like when workers recognize their power, like we we do the work. Until we're all replaced by robots, uh, which, you know, might happen eventually, but not as soon as people think. Um, we have the power to shut down the flow of commerce. And everyone looked at me like I was crazy. And then this shit went down, and the teacher strike happened, and they won. They won concessions from Republican-controlled state legislatures in states where they're not even allowed to have an official union. So, yeah. like, what? And, I mean, and... And to bring it back to the AFL, uh, Sarah Nelson, who was the head of the flight attendants union, um, who, who got up and called for a general strike during the, the government shutdown and got a lot of attention for that, you know, is uh, maybe going to gonna try to be the next head of the AFL, you know, so. Great. Great. I mean, you know, and I, I do hope that uh, I, I interviewed her during the shutdown and after she had made that general strike speech and she. And I said, you know, why don't why don't you just walk? You know, well, and she was like, well, we didn't know it was going to be thirty five days. I mean, <laughs> I was like, it's, this never happened before. But I do hope that, like you said, like people take it as a lesson, and if it happens again, I'd like to see even more concerted labor action up front. You know? 
this is again back to the structural shit is that you had the Wagner Act, which basically Section 7A made it legal for the first time to work or, for workers to self-organize within a workplace and you know have the right to collectively bargain. But then you had the counter-revolution to that, which is Taft-Hartley in 1947, which came right on the heels of our last general strike, by the way, uh, in Oakland in uh, 46. But the reason why Taft-Hartley had to ban things like general strikes, like secondary boycotts, where you say, I won't move any goods for a you know, non-union outfit, uh, things like... Um, yeah, um, mil like sit-down strikes and militant activities and, and brought like right to work, you know, made that a thing in the United States is because these are the, 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 all the powers that built the union movement, they wanted to nip those in the bud, right? Yeah. So institutionally, you have this split between a militant, rising militant working class, especially young folks right now, who know what has to be done, who know that, you know, ultimately you have to stop things if you're going to make things better. You know, you're going to have to shut shit down. You're going to have to get militant. And labor leaders who are bound by labor law, you know, to basically, like, they can be shut down. The, the union could be liquidated. The president of the union could be sent to jail for advocating a, a general strike or a secondary boycott. These are structural issues that make me believe that, in a certain sense, you know, the only strike that's a failure is the strike that loses. You know, the only strike that's illegal is uh, the strike that doesn't win. Yeah, like, how did we get the right to strike in the first place? By doing illegal I shit. By doing illegal shit. That's the only way that we've ever done it. What, all right, so not to get on a soapbox, but in 2011, everybody remembers, right, Wisconsin, all right? You had Scott motherfucking Walker go in there, and he's going to strip the public sector workers of all of their powers to collectively bargain. You had a massive occupation of the Capitol. You had the Democratic, uh, what, what were they, like state senators? They fled so that there couldn't be a quorum for the vote. You had, you know, mass people, mass, massive amounts of people from all different trades, even, even people who weren't affected from it by, like, you know, firefighters who were uh, still going to re remain, like, retain their rights. Even they got involved in it in a, in a big way, and you had this massive upsurge. The Central Labor Council there, uh, basically voted almost unanimously to get their membership prepared for a general strike. It would have been the first one in over 50 years. And what happened was, unfortunately, that militancy and that energy was very quickly nipped in the bud by the more conservative leadership and by the politicians who said, no, 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 no reason to go out on general strike. That's illegal. You're going to get into a lot of trouble. And anyways, we'll just recall Scott Walker. We'll just have another election. You'll vote for a Democrat this time, and, you know, everything will be fine. We all know Scott Walker wins again. But that moment in time, 2011, is a very teachable moment as well, because if they had done what, what, the, what the, the, um, the radical leadership of those unions and what the rank and file want to do, if they had gone on general strike, imagine how different things had been right now if they set that precedent where we didn't have to wait for fucking eight years for the aviation workers, you know, to, to set that precedent. We would have had an eight-year jump on this. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, strikes are 100% about power, right? They're not about law at all. They're just about if you can win or not. And I mean, this is, my, my one of my soapbox issues is like, you know, one reason people are reluctant to strike, obviously, especially if a strike is illegal, is that they're economically precarious. You know, they're afraid of losing their jobs for obvious reasons. And I mean, it's a big step to get people to strike. It's not easy to tell people to strike on pure ideology. You know, people need to pay the bills. And like, one project that I would like to see is to get the money 
from the rich liberals, the rich liberals who give their money to save the fucking whales, put that money in the labor movement. You know what I'm saying? Somebody needs to create a funnel from Hollywood rich liberals to the labor yes. movement. This does not exist. Like Mass all, strike fund. All these like charity balls, like all the shit that rich liberals give their money to, electoral politics, climate, you know, put some of that money into the labor movement. There's, it, it multiplies itself so effectively when you build labor power, you know? What if you had a general strike fund for things like this? What if you had, you know, what if you could just hire a thousand more organizers? Like, think of the actual substantive change that that could bring about. So if there's any rich liberals that listen to the podcast, <laughs> there might be a thought. couple. give me your ride. Every time of a child tore me all upside down. Every time of a child tore me all upside down. Tried that old Jeffrelino, can't seem to turn him around. So preach blues. You ain't never had them, I don't believe you will. Blues is an agonal heart disease. Blues is an agonal heart disease. It's like consumption, baby, killing me by degrees. So preach blues. Go be there.